0: Welcome again to the strange brew podcast my name is jason barnard and that was verdon allen and hold on to this from his new album no one knows however you will know much of the material on this podcast because verdon was the original keyboard player in Mot the hoople songwriter he's had an amazing career in music a huge welcome verdon Nice to talk to you, Jason. Thank you. It's always good to start and, and end with uh, new material. So uh, right. tell us about uh, No One Knows. Is this a collection of music that you've had for a while, or is it all new? Well, two of the songs,
1: uh, Hold On To This and Find Time To Live, those were recorded a while back, but I've uh, remixed them. And then I started to write one or two songs, and it just developed into uh, an album, you know? I mean, and... Uh, I was asked if I had any material, and I said yes. And um, then they said they'd uh, release it for me in digital form to start off. Yeah. So that's a a good thing. It's new to me, mind, a digital format. I've I've got to learn different things.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. It's a great way of spreading the word on on your music. So you were saying that, hold on to this, dates back uh, more in the period of time.
1: Yes, that was when I had a a band going, and... um, the band was called Soft Ground, and uh, we were doing quite a few gigs, and I recorded a few tracks with them. And uh, I thought, uh, try it out and remix it, you know, because the boys are still around yeah. if something did happen, which is a good thing, like, it's, uh, to sort of add on to it, you know. I mean, what uh, mm. so I thought uh, it, it blends in with the other tracks okay, so that's the main thing.
0: So hold on to this. Uh, was that song that you penned just yourself, or were you collaborating with anyone in the songwriting department?
1: Uh, no, that's, uh, that's one of my own, Jason, yeah. Hmm. It's, uh, you know, I mean, uh, very rarely write with people. It was only re- when I was with Hoopla, one or two uh, I'd done with Ian. Yeah,
0: But since then, it's been uh, mainly myself. Fantastic. So after covering a little bit, an in- introduction to No One Knows with Hold On To This, let's go back deep into the early years of, of your career. And your first bands were in the uh, early 1960s, weren't
1: they? Yes, um, first band I had was was called uh, the Inmates, and then that uh, changed then onto uh, becoming the uh, Shakedown Sound, and uh, then we had um, an offer where we saw an ad in the Melody Maker for an uh, island recording artist needed a band, so it was Jimmy Cliff. So we went down to London and uh, teamed up with Jimmy, and done so many gigs. It was untrue. Never stopped playing for about three and a half years, something like that. He was. He was struggling to come through at the time, but he was a great songwriter and a great artist, Jimmy Cliff. Very, very good on stage. But we weren't uh, signed up to Ireland ourselves. Mm. We were sort of um, working for Jimmy, really. So when it came to recording, what happened then was, you know, I thought to myself, well, this isn't going any further. I thought we've got to get something down. Uh, we want to record something. And uh, he was on an album, and Jimmy Miller, who later produced uh, Stones' jumping Jack Flash, Jimmy Miller was producing Jimmy Cliff in uh, Pi Studios just off Marble Arch in London. I remember doing it there. And uh, they said, OK, um, you can record the track. And we had to sort of learn, what to share the page, sort of on the spot more or less. And I thought, hang on. So we had, the, had about two hours to get it together. And I think we'd done one take. And uh, I said to Jimmy, I said, hang on, can, can we go through it again? That's through the producer. This is Jimmy, Jimmy Miller. And he said, no, that's fine, that'll do it, will be okay. He said, we'll we'll use it. And they did, so it came on his uh, album. I think it's uh, Hard Road to Travel, yeah? That's the album? Yeah. I
0: believe so. An early version of White Shade of Pale as well.
1: Well, it was, yeah, at the time. You know, but we didn't have a lot of time to rehearse it. (laughs) So it might be a bit jerky here and there, but um, it came out okay, I think. Jimmy sang it well, didn't he? Was Mick Ralph on the the scene in in this period as well? No, it wasn't uh, Mick Ralph. The the shakedown sound consisted of John Best on guitar, uh, John Best on bass guitar, Kevin Gammond on lead guitar, and Sean Jenkins as a drummer, and myself on organ. It was just the four of us. No, uh, uh, Mick came later on. He did join the band, but it was later on after uh, after Kelvin had uh, left. Calvin uh, Gammond left and formed a band with um, Rob Plant, and 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 later that became uh, Led Zeppelin. Mm-hmm. Not with him in it, of course. But they uh, yeah, had the bandage it Was when uh, when Kevin Gammond was with him. I think they're still they're still together now in 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 the college in Kidminster. we have got something going there. Yeah. Were you playing live a lot with Jimmy Cliff? Well, we done. Sometimes nine gigs a week. You do an all-nighter, and then maybe you ought to go to Birmingham Ice Rink and do one there in the afternoon, and then one in Birmingham in the night. And this went on for about three years. All the time, never stopped. First of all, we went to France. We went there a couple of times. And um, when we came back over here, we got so many gigs, it wasn't true. It was unbelievable. Fantastic, really. You know, and uh, after that, then, he was with Island Records. He failed to get a hit with them. He went out to Trojan Records, and then he had Wonderful World had a hit with them. And after that, I'd sort of uh, departed with McRulse because he was in the band then. I departed and we came back to Hereford and formed uh, the band that we ha- that he had there before. And uh, that became uh, Matt Hoople after an audition with Guy Stevens.
2: was feeling kind of seasick The crowds called out for more The room was having harder As the ceiling flew away When we call out for another dream The weather brought a train so it was, lay it up. As told little toast, yes, it was. Let her face her first just go, Turned Turn the water, shit up. through my playing cards Would not let her be Snake.
0: the band called when you first joined them was it Doc Thomas
1: or Silence uh, Yeah, it was a Doc Thomas group and then we changed the name to Silence Right. and we went to Italy and played in Italy and then um, when we came back then we played in the Chateau Impney in Droitwich and somebody mentioned Guy Stevens and um, from, I think Mick went down to yeah. see him and uh, he brought us down to uh, for an audition he had a song called The Rebel which I've re-recorded now mm. it's a Charles Ward song uh, we've done in Rockfield I recorded that on this new album. No one knows. Hmm. But uh, the Guy liked uh, the look of the band when we went down there. He liked the sound. He liked, uh, he liked us, uh, Hammond, carting the Hammond up the stairs, and uh, put us into Morgan Studios. And then, then we recorded our first album there.
0: I heard it was a bit of an effort
1: to get that Hammond up the stairs. <laughs> it, it always was. <laughs> Full scale job. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a smaller one. That was a L100 and the one uh, M100, I mean. The one I got now is a C3, but uh, the, that was still heavy. He admired the fact that we had it, and that was the sound of the day. You know, it was quite a lot of hamming around, the you should the pale and all this, as we say. So I think that helped a little bit to get us the
0: deal. So when you got that deal and, and first auditioned for Guy, Ian Hunter wasn't
1: in the band? No, no, it wasn't. It was Stan Tippins. Um, well, I still see Stan now. He's in Hereford. Stan Tippins, um, but we had a problem. We, we'd already we got up the Carvin and played, and um, Stan wasn't well then. After that, we had to come down. He got damaged. He had a bit of a, a bit of an accident before we got there. He couldn't sing proper. So we had to go down to London without him and um, audition. Then once Stan was better about a week, so after he came down to London to audition with us, Guy didn't think he was right for the job. Troubled with his PA system to start that broke down, and Guy Guy needed something to happen straight away. so. What happened then was um, we put, uh, put an ad in and Ian came along. It was in uh, Denmark Street, actually, A little studio on Denmark Street Denmark Street in London. That's where we um, auditioned. But no, he, he wasn't there in the beginning, but right at the beginning, then we formed Mot the Hoople. Off. Straight away, from the beginning of Mot the Hoople, Ian was in it then, straight away.
0: Was it guy who had the idea to name you Mot the Hoople?
1: He did. Out of a book by um, uh, Willard Manis. Willard Manish was a, he, a fictitious character, Mott was, and every time he got on a good thing, he sort of blew it for some reason, which relates to, to the band and to what goes on a lot in music, really, if you think about it. So uh, that's where Guy got the, with the name from, from Willard Manish, a book called Mott Hoople.
0: And Ian, was he, was he older than band members? Because he'd been around the music scene for quite a while.
1: Yes, uh, Ian is five year older than us. And uh, it was is quite a lot then, that was a bit younger, you know. Mm. So he was a heavier, he, he had more experience in a way for lyrics and that sort of thing. And that's what Guy was looking for. He was looking for somebody who could write. And Stan couldn't do that, you see. He wanted somebody to write songs. And Mick could write uh, some songs, but then he um, came out in and wrote uh, more deeper songs than Mick did. And um yes, he, he was that much older, just that much older. And uh, five years, I think it was. The first Motley Crue Hoop, album—that was a
0: a mix of original material, but there was quite a few covers. Where did they come
1: from? Yeah, well, the uh, Kinks, Really Got Me," we'd done a cover version of that, but no lyrics, just just an instrumental version. Mm. And uh, Sonny Bonham, if Sonny and Cher. Yeah. Sonny had a number called um, "Laugh at Me." We recorded that, uh, but the rest of it, I believe, was uh, all um, original stuff, which was rock and roll, Queen, and all that. Uh, you know, all those songs. Uh, Half Moon Bay, I quite like that. That was, was fairly deep. That one got us, the, uh, got us the deal, really. And Chris Blackwood walked into Morgan Studios because that's where we recorded it. And um, he walked in just when we were doing that. There was uh, a grating organ sound in the middle, sort of joining the, a classical part up with us where it ended. There was a gap there, and I put his organ. And he caught that, and the sound got him, that bit, and he wondered what it was. He thought it was fantastic. And uh, a girl that he had with him, Chris Blackwell, she liked it. And uh, that was it. He just said "The Guy Stevens, carry on, and that was it. We didn't do any demos in those days. Every time we recorded something, it was, it, it was released. There wasn't that much time to do demos. When we were playing on the road, we were playing nearly every night. Once the gigs came in with Island Records, it was uh, non-stop. And we got booked back. And this is what it's all about. They put you on the road and uh, give you all these gigs. And if you get booked back, it's up to the band, really. And, uh, and we did. And uh, we just kept playing all the time. But we couldn't come up with a hit record for them, which is a shame.
0: Rock and Roll Queen now has an
1: anthemic quality, but it was released a single in. Yes, it was in 1969 when 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 the album came out. And sometimes this this happens. The songs always seem better along to you know later on. But uh, you know it, we were just put straight in the studio. We had a for about I think we had five days, six days of rehearse in the Pied Bull in Islington. I think it's a wine bar now. And then we went straight in and recorded it. And it was more or less live, straight off the cuff, you know, because uh, Guy liked it that way.
0: The last song on the album, Rough and Roll, was that almost a payment to Guy for producing? Cause yeah,
1: well, what used to happen, Jason, when we used to do these songs, sometimes we'd go into a freak out ah. because everything went crazy. We were very good at doing that. I'm good at getting out of it as well. It'd be, uh, we had a, a signal that got us out from it, and people just wonder how we'd done that. So one of these freakouts that that was on one of the songs that was called and Roller, I believe, yeah, and that was put on there. And Guy sort of kept that for himself, you see. <laughs> yeah, we let him have that because he used to inspire us and sort of spur us on to doing things. It was fantastic. You know, he's very powerful that way, like you know. And I'd like to say this: he was the one group man. When, once he took you on, right. he put everything into that, you know. Yeah, brilliant, really. <laughs>
0: Mad Shadows, the um, range of material for that seemed to take a lot longer to record.
1: Yes, well, that was done in uh, Olympic Studios in Barnes, Uh, Well, we later recorded All the Young Dudes, Uh, but we were, um, the song, uh, All the Young Dudes. What happened was uh, we were in the Olympic Studios, it did take longer there, but we were striving for songs. Quite a few of them were sort of, when my mind's gone, that one was sort of, Done on the spot, really. Just with Ian on the piano and myself, just backing him on a little bit of organ, following him with him an organ. It took a while to do, actually, that, yeah. And it was produced a little bit different. We were looking, trying to get a, a more production then for that.
0: There's more material by Ian Hunter, like No Wheels to Ride, so...
1: Yes, No Wheels to Ride, yeah.
0: Ian's influence started coming in more, I assume?
1: Yes, it did, for that one, yes. Uh, and uh, Mick was more into the rock and roll thing, well, I might mind he came up, he came up with some nice little ballads later on, mixed it himself, you know. Yes, at the time it was. I can see it happening now. It was it was a bit of a struggle, but we got it done, and that was the only one that pipped into the charts, getting the charts somewhere. That album, mad Shadows," not high in the charts, but uh, it was there somewhere. And in terms of
0: recording, was that just because you were playing live so much, and and you were only dipping into the studio when you had the opportunity?
1: Yes, they'd give us time, you know, to do an album. After after we'd had so many months, say about five, six months, and we'd had to do another album, then we, a couple of weeks we'd have maximum, I think, to do it. And that was more or less write it and all as well. I mean, I think Ian was trying to write it as he was going along, and so was Mick, picking up ideas. And that was the problem at the time. You know, it was a hard-working band. Most of the bands who played a lot then, anyway you know, there it, it, it was a big club circuit around. mm I remember meeting Jimmy Jimmy Savile up, up north somewhere, and his hair was dyed the purple, blonde, and green, you know, just before he be, made it big, like. You know, there was gigs all over the place, yeah, but uh, there weren't a lot of discos then. It was just that was sort of starting off. It was mainly bands live, you know.
0: It was just in the van on on these B roads across Britain.
1: All the time in the van, and then all of a sudden, I mean, we, we, uh, progressed onto having a car, a, a zodiac estate, no, a, a zodiac, Mark 3 zodiac to start off with, and then a Mark 4 zodiac. And then, of course, the, the roadies then, Richard and Phil, they'd get there earlier to set the gear up. And we had a bit more time then to relax and do things in between, uh, playing, you know. It was, it was a little bit easier then, but it's still hard graft. and are on the motorway all the time. So how did things compare
0: when you went over to the States? Because you, you were on the bill with some huge names as well.
1: We were, on the first tour, we were yeah, bands like Mountain, people like that, and uh, yeah, I can't think of all of them. We'd, we'd done gigs with uh, Just Rotel mm. and various people. But it was different. I, I sort of had a hire in Hammonds over there. We hired the stuff, most of the stuff over there when we were there because it was too expensive to fly it all over there. You know, Jason? Uh. So um, that's what uh, what happened. Of course, I had an M100 over here. I, when I went over there and started playing with C3s, I had the sound over here then. So when I came back, I bought
0: one. <laughs> I've read that you played the Atlanta Pop Festival in the States and there was hundreds of thousands of people.
1: Well, to me, that was the biggest gig we'd done, you see. It was heaving there. It went off a quarter of a million people there, yeah. Because when I'd done an interview uh 2013 with uh, Ian, and they asked me, it was a male, um, they, they asked me first for the biggest gig, and I said it was the Atlanta Pop, Pop Festival. And then Ian said, no, it wasn't. It was uh, Royal Albert Hall. Well, prestigiously, maybe, in this country. Mm. Uh, but, <laughs> I mean, you can't compare 3,000 people with a quarter of a half a million, you know? Yeah. But that sort of... Uh, that's the way it was. Yeah, it was a big gig, very big. Yeah, Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah. When you were finishing Mad Shadows,
0: I've read that you you weren't keen on Guy's mix of the album. Is that true? It was
1: just one number, Thunderbird Ram, mm. and uh, I put this um, really raspy organ solo on it. And uh, when he mixed it, it uh, it wasn't on there. You can't really hear it. So I went a bit bananas about that. I didn't like it much, and. Uh, he wanted me out of the band after that, but the group stuck with me, because uh, I think Guy was uh, flying high a little bit at the time, and um, it's, uh, they stuck with me. No, it was just that one track. But the organ, he, he reckons the organ was uh, a bit too raspy to sort of bring up in the mix, but I think it could have been done. Mm. But No, it, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't a complete album. It was just that one track.
2: tracks to take on down road I walk is getting heavy but I must still go on
0: You've just mentioned about Guy potentially trying to push you out of the group, but I'm reading in, around that time, Guy still
1: wasn't 100% on, on Ian. Well, I mean, uh, it was, uh, I don't know, I mean, he sort of, uh, Ian was the sort of um, the bloke that Guy could sort of get what he wanted out of because he, he could sort of, Guy had this thing in his mind what he wanted to do, and yeah, because he couldn't do it himself, couldn't write it down, and uh, Ian sort of came out with it with the words and things. What, what guy was looking for somehow? I, mean, I don't know what what you know. He was sort of uh, getting him into all that sort of thing, and uh, it, it was uh, I don't know. I don't know if he wanted him out of the band. I, I don't know. I, don't, I shouldn't think so. I mean, I think he was happy with the band like it was. Right. Not really. No. I mean, uh, I know what Ian wanted to get Biffy out in the beginning, the drummer. Mm. Because he had another drummer called Chris Hunt that he wanted, wanted to uh, have in the band. And we said to Ian, well, look, you've just joined. If anybody's leaving, it'll be you. Mm. And uh, Chris Hunt was a friend of his. Um Buffin was uh, the ideal bloke for us. He's a fantastic drummer, Buffin. Fantastic. I can't believe he's gone, actually. Mm. Or Pete. Yeah. Can't believe it, really. In the end, Chris Hunt ended up with a band called Meal Ticket, I believe. I don't know if he'd done anything or not. Mm. Yeah, but... Uh, which is appropriate because he was starving at the time. He was really on the breadline. So I don't know. No, we were okay. We were happy enough, when we were going. After that, then what happened was when when we got rid of Guy, because the boys, the Guy took me up to Ireland, upstairs into a a room to tell me that I was out of the band. But the boys were listening outside, and they came in and said, "No, Fali, because they used to call me Fali. Fali's not out of the band. It's uh, it's you, Guy. You've got to go," he said they said to him and I thought that's very good I said thanks boys and after that then we done done um, what was the next album then Wildlife Wildlife that's right and that was Wildlife we called it because <laughs> they said well you got a guy out of the band uh, later after the Wildlife it, it didn't really work we, was, we were trying to do like a country album then it came uh, it came through a little bit um, timid you know Brian Humphrey sort of uh, produced that mm. we, we'd been working with uh Pink Floyd and people like that. But, uh, you know, using them all that thing, so it came out a bit timid, and we were all... Mind you, I enjoyed the album myself. Yeah, but there's there's still some really good
0: songs. Waterlow is, is one of the highlights.
1: Yes, Waterlow, that's right. Yeah, We've got a string section in to do that. I put some Hammond on it, just if you notice, there's just a little bit of Hammond weaving in and out through it. Hmm. That, that was very uh, emotional, that. I think it was uh, uh, Ian writing about his uh, his ex-wife, actually. Oh. At the time, yeah, yes, it was a good album in this way, but it wasn 't uh, hard it in for forest.
2: changing
1: Of course at that time when we were doing that um i was uh asked to sort of play do a, a track with bronco
2: mm.
1: at that particular time a clifford t Ward number called discernible mm. and that's uh on there really in it uh, and so i done that
0: was that through uh, bronco
1: lead vocals jess Roden? then yes it was jess Roden. um but it was kevin gummond who was with us with a shakedown sound right. got in touch with me about that because he was very pally with Clifford T. Ward. I think it was from the same area, the Kiddly Misser area, Birmingham. And um, he asked me to do it, so uh, I went in and, um, yes, it was, that's right, that was uh, Jess Roden. You had a very good, good voice, Jess.
0: Yeah, because um, on the uh, Ace of Sunlight album, you've got other members of Mott playing on various tracks.
1: Yes, well, I never knew that. Yeah, well, that's probably because at that time, it was about the same time when we were doing uh, A Wildlife, I believe. Right. That's what it was, yeah. Yeah, so we were in the studio, and that's about the same time, yeah. Were you recording
0: in the same studio as Bronco?
1: Yes, that would have been in the island studios in Basing Street. Ah. Because there was a big church in Basing Street, and that was converted into the island offices and downstairs in the crypt. (laughs) That was uh, where the studio was. Yeah, Then. I, yeah, it was a, a real good studio, actually. Yeah, that's where we done that one, if I can remember rightly. Definitely, yeah. So lots of connections with Ireland, because
0: early on in the show, we were talking about Jimmy Cliff on Ireland and you featuring on there,
1: so... That's right. That's it, because like when we went down with I, with Jimmy Cliff, I, he knew of us then, I believe, and uh, yes, it all came in, all fairly... I loved Ireland records. It was like a family. Mm. And the boys used to say, well, we're never going to get a hit record with them, and I used to say... Well, I can't say. I mean uh, Free I've had a hit record rhythm other people have had hit records We just have to, haven't found the right song if you think about it
2: special and the shiny surface face, but the face is still discernible. i yeah.
1: And then after Wildlife, of course, we needed Guy Stevens to come back in then to do the next album. Brain Capers. That's right. We needed Guy to come back. So they said, well, you got him out to the band. I said, well, we all got him out of the band. They said, yeah, but it was you was <laughs> blaming me, you see. I don't mind that. <laughs> blaming me for it. They said, you better ask him if he'll come back. So I went to go and see him. And um, he took him and Andy. Andy was producing it. Uh, I forget his surname now. It, it wasn't Andy Miller, Andy. He, he sort of, it um, took me out in the car for a night in London, a couple of nights running actually, to sort of uh, mellow it all out a little bit, around the various clubs. And then we came back in and brought him back in, then he came in to do it. And it went uh, crazy in the studios, absolutely crazy. That was more of a live album. It was like going back to the first album, only with a uh, more tack
0: because we had more experience then so you've been talking about the recording of brain capers was crazy but the story is about smashing up the studios was, i think we got
1: drunk on the first night we put about three tracks down and um guy brought all his wine in and uh, we had quite a few drinks and uh, it just went bananas i don't know how it sort of happened it just sparked off the way it went and uh Ended up throwing chairs into the walls, the soundproofing walls of, of the of the studio. And outside, in Ireland, he had all these huge photographs uh, of uh, various bands, you know, and uh, just hotel sort of all these different bands. And they all got smashed up, except for the one we never smashed up. Uh, traffic, because that was the uh, Ben not touched that, because that's Chris Blackwell's favorite band, and. Uh, but The next day, it was such a chaos. It was glass all over the floor. Hell of a mess when the office, because you've got to remember the fire going to the, down to the studio, that was the reception area for the office. The offices were upstairs. And um, oh, when, the, when the people came to work the next day, they couldn't believe it. Like, what happened last night? Like a bomb had hit, hit it. And Chris Blackwell came down to see us, and he we thought, we've well, had it now.
2: Mm.
1: And, uh, God, Jesus. He, he said, "Ah, Good night, last night, Lance. <laughs> and, Somebody said, oh, we got three songs done. And he went, oh, that's good. <laughs> right, carry on. <laughs> so he didn't say anything, so like, um, let's let us do it. But we had to pay for all the all the mess, man, what was done, you know. We had to pay for all that. But I wrote my so- first song there. There was Soft, uh, um, Second Love. Right. That was my first song. And uh, Ian sort of sang that one. And, of course, I uh, co-wrote... Um, santa claus death may be a santa claus with uh with ian and that was the beginning and uh, i i just went and opened up on the hammond and, and i got uh, i got quite a bit in there and uh, the mixes were, were good so i was quite happy with that
0: <laughs> was it was it guy who, who named death may be a santa claus yes
1: yes of course uh, andy johns it was the engineer right andy johns yes guy did yeah and um, it, it's called how long it was called how long before he realized I'm strange? because course, uh, Guy always used to come up with these classic sort of uh, titles, you know. <laughs> He'd come up with these things. And uh, the, the engineer broke a, a tape assistant who was working there. Couldn't believe what was going on. In fact, he resigned from the job the next day. It frightened him to death what was happening there. You had Guy and Andy doing cartwheels over the desk. Every time he mixed a song, I put one down. But it was... Uh, one of the best albums we've done, I like that. Yeah. I think so. The first one on that one, there's something about it, but uh, Wild Days. And it was that album that uh, David Bowie sort of hooked onto. He liked that album. So we used to say David Bowie. They say Bowie, but in London, we used to say Bowie. We used to call him Bowie. And of course, he came along after that album when we didn't have any hits. and We were just about on the verge of being booted out of Island Records. And um, we were looking for this hit, and uh, Pete over in Watts got in touch with David. He had his number from somewhere, and he knew him, and uh, he wrote all the young dudes for us, because he liked the Brain Capers album. Like the sound he, he said we you can't. We, he said we we may be packing up because we we'd made it on a made our minds up. We were going to pack it up because mm. we had this tour organized. The rock and roll circus with Max Wald and these uh, knife throwers and performing dogs and all and jugglers and all sorts of things. On, on you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> And Chris Blackwell, we went to tell Chris Blackwell that we were going to pack it up, and he took us upstairs and he said to us all, he said, look, he said, you want to pack up? He said, well, I've got. Uh, news to you lot he said i spent a lot of money on this tour of yours mm. and if you pack up he said i'll see to it that none of you will ever do anything in the music business again oh. <laughs> and we, somebody said oh, we better we better stay together <laughs> and i thought thank god for that because it would have broken my heart if uh if we'd packed up because i left the band and uh I wouldn't have liked to have seen us packing up without uh, having the success that I thought must come sometime. And it did. It came from David Bowie. He came up with all the young
0: dudes for us. So do you remember that moment when Bowie came into the, the office and sat you all down and played all the young dudes?
1: Well, he played, that was in um, Mainman Studios off New Bond Street. Right. He took us up, he had this song, Because first of all, well, after we'd done this tour with the knife throwers and all this sort of stuff, um, we had this letter coming just, uh, all these flowers and all this stuff coming saying I've written you a hit song for you and all this because Ireland didn't know what was going on at the time they were just about ready to boot us out I think but uh, they didn't know nothing about it and of um, course we were at the main man offices then off New Bond Street and he played us this song and uh, on acoustic guitar which takes a bit of doing really mm. if you're surrounded by by a band you know what I mean and having to sing it and he'd done that and we all liked it and and uh, fantastic Uh we, we booked a studio then and we went in to do it but and then of course Tony Vries, his manager got us a deal with um with CBS because CBS has put uh, offered to David Bowie and they turned him down and uh, he went to RCA and they thought well if it's good enough for Elvis it's good enough for us <laughs> so he went he went off and being a great businessman he went off to uh, CBS and said look you've uh, missed out on David Bowie he said uh up and do the same thing with Motta you? and then they signed us up, look. But Ireland didn't like that very much. But it would have happened, they would have kicked us out anyhow. So a deal was made between the companies, and off we went and they recorded all the young dudes. In terms of recording that, was that at Olympic? Oh, yeah, so Olympic Studios and Barnes, yeah. That's where we sort of done, Which um, one we do there, much there as well, yeah.
0: Obviously, David was heavily involved in in producing and and shaping that sound so much so we can hear his guide vocal now. But um, do you remember, actually, the recording? There must have been quite a buzz. Oh, yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah,
1: we done it with more or less one or two takes. I can't even remember rehearsing it properly. That's the amazing thing because we were playing all the time and uh, we just rehearsed it and run through it and that was it. Boom, done. And then, then of course, uh, Ian put his vocal on and uh, David then put the uh, U's and R's on it. You see all that, you know. Right. And then the chorus, he put the chorus on it uh, along with some of the boys in the band in here.
0: What about the uh, when it did get released and and it was a hit? That must have yes. been amazing because you'd had so many. Releases that that kind of only got to the the bottom end
1: of the charts, but this was a proper hit. It was, it was. Well, you know, they were really into it, and he played us when they had done the acetate. We went back up to that place again in Mainman for him to play the the mix of it. And there was a fellow there down the bottom end, and he was uh, from CBS. And to tell her the truth, the Hammond was down; he couldn't hear it at all on it. And I sort of went, "Oh, my like God!" And this bloke came wandering over. He said, "Right, uh, David," he said organ's not loud enough, back in the studio, mix it, same time tomorrow, boys. And I thought, fantastic, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They wanted everybody to be happy in the band with with the mix and the thing. But I night about suicide I'd
2: kick it in the head when he was 25 be jive. don't wanna say alive when you're twenty-five, and when he's stealing clothes from Marks and Sparks, And Freddy's got spots from ripping up the side from his face, funky little boat rage. The television man is crazy, Sam with juvenile delinquent wreck. Evolution's stop What a drag! Too many snacks nah, I drank a lot of wine and I'm feeling fine.
1: And once we'd done that, then we had to go in to do an album then. We went to Trident Studios to do that in Florida Street. And then they brought us an acetate in each and said, Yeah, boys, here's an acetate, which is just a a rough cut of your hit single. I've still got mine now. It's probably worth a few, Bob, now. (laughs) (laughs) And um, that was it. You had the feeling it was going to be a hit straight away, you know. The old uh, feel of of being with CBS and all this sort of thing, it was totally different from being with Ireland. Top of the Pops? Top of the Pops, yeah. I had my Hammond there and they didn't like my Hammond because it's got a, a German thing on the back of it. <laughs> I should have covered it over, really. i am still got it now, the Hammond. Actually, I'm selling it, actually. The Hammond's going for sale in Bonhams in November. Oh. Not because I uh, want to get rid of it or, or for the money. It's just the fact is... It's taken up a lot of room now, and there's no more Mother Hoople. Mm. I only used it with and, uh, uh, you know, and, Hoople, uh, and that was it like. But uh, I played today for songs, mm. and the soft ground was one that I got on the dude's album. That was because David Bowie liked it. He liked the, um, the soft ground, the track that I got soft ground. He said, it's the sort of thing I'd write myself, he said. So he put some who's and eyes on that for me. I'm a little bit of synth. And you sung that? I did, yeah, in a way. He got me to do it, and he liked it, actually.
0: We followed the arc of you uh, playing with Jimmy Cliff and then playing with the
1: band and then starting to write material. That's, just, that's the same thing, and really, isn't it, if you think about it? Yeah. I wanted to record, and we couldn't, with Jimmy Cliff, then we'd done one number. I wanted to do things with the group, and I, I only managed to do one number, soft ground, and I started writing quite a few more tracks then, but... Uh, There's no way I could uh, get them done, really, because uh, I was starting to write a bit too late. So the only alternative was to leave the band, really.
0: So was it basically you wanting to have more input creatively on
1: on material? Well, it was that, plus the fact things were going on. I didn't really know what was happening at the time. Mm. It was like um, things going on that I, you know, behind the back. And that happened just recently in 2009, Mick and Ian sort of done a deal with um, a European trademark And uh, Biendo Bax, and uh, that's why they'd done this last tour as uh, Mark Hooper with Ariel Bender and people in it, you know. Mm. So that was another reason I I could see I wasn't going to get any further with it. And I thought, I'd better go. So I I sort of left, and uh, I wrote one song with him before that, funny enough, Him for the Dudes. And that was released after... Yeah, that was on the next out, after I'd left, yeah. So but we've done that. So we've done it live in the, in the last uh, two reunions. But they done a good version of it, anyhow.
0: So you were you were happy. So even if you you didn't
1: play on it, you actually thought that it was. Uh... You, oh yes, yeah. Well, I, well to tell you the truth, they did ask me if I wanted to go to the studios. But I was in Food with a band called the Cheeks at the time. And uh, if I'd have gone down and just played a couple of chords on it, I I would have had a gold album, you know. But I didn't do that. I was out of the band, and that was it. But uh, Yes, I was happy the way it came out, yeah.
0: And you mentioned the Cheeks. So that had, uh, was it Martin Chambers and
1: James Honeyman
0: Scott? Were they pretenders? Yes, Kelvin
1: Wilson on bass, Martin Chambers on drums and James Honeyman Scott. We never took a deal, never sort of secured a deal. We were offered quite a few, but we never did. I was with them for three years. And um, then that became The Pretenders. Mm. It led on to uh, becoming The Pretenders with Chrissy Hind. Not many people know that, will they? Not a lot, No. And they don't say nothing much about it. Yeah. Martin doesn't say a lot about it. But uh, for three years I was with Jimmy Scott, and uh, I uh, I did the cheeks. I thought a lot of it. We done quite a few gigs, really. We recorded a few numbers, hypnotised and things like that, which which uh, Jack Nelson, Jack Nelson liked. Jack Nelson was uh, Queen. The the book responsible for Queen, oh. getting Queen their, their deal in Trident Productions. And they had me in there with the Cheeks, and the mistake I made was I didn't sign up with them. If I'd have signed up with them, it was a production company. I thought they were a record company, but they weren't a production company. They would have got us a deal, because they took on Mr. Big after that, and got them a deal. And they'd done the same thing with um, Queen. They had him in the studio at record, and when they recorded, then they got him a deal after the M.I. But I didn't sign up with them. So we were drifting there, and we were getting quite a few gigs, really, with the Cheeks.
2: Spangled Fiend As all the people Disappear The light light Fades away Cause if you think You are A star For so long They'll come From near and far y'all forget just who you are oh yes you, are. you ain't the nails. you're just a buzz some kind of temporary <laughs>
1: And then it fizzled out, and uh, I had a deal. Then after that, with uh, Jet Records, with uh, Luther. But um, before that, mm. what happened was when when I um, I had this uh, deal with on the rebound. Really, it should have been with my band. That should have what should have been happening with the band, because that's when I recorded in Trident for Jack Nelson. That's what he took us in to do. That, Sweet Sweet Girl, and Hypnotized. But um, it never, it was never to be. So uh, Chrissy Iron came along and uh, snuffled up the boys, and she was lucky, really, because they were already into it then. Mm. They'd learned quite a bit off me, and um, you know I'd spent a lot of money on them, actually. Didn't re- nothing was recouped. But uh, that's, that's the way it goes. Where cook, the cookie crumbles, I'm afraid. Yeah.
0: yeah. So the, uh, the Verdon and Lufa single, that's, that was on the rebound?
1: Yes, that was, that, that's what happened then. Um, actually, that was before the cheeks uh, disbanded really because uh, I was looking for a deal I was in London with Martin and uh, we up the bump into Luther and he said you know that song you got on the rebound he said uh, have you got a copy of that uh, got it done on anything I said yeah he said well let's go let's take it to Jet Records he said so we took it to Jet Records and um, they liked it and they put us in the studio so Martin Chambers myself luther and uh norman jarrett a friend of mine came and played bass and we went and recorded it and they released it for us on jet records it sounds very commercial well yes i mean that, that was what happened was contract wise it got a bit deep and i think it uh things twisted around a little bit and uh it went a bit sour and um i don't know what happened there I, I, but uh maybe i shouldn't be saying this but these things do happen and of course uh that's when Martin went back to Hereford and uh, that's when Chrissy Pine came along. Then, just as that was sort of not happening, yeah. she came along and sort of picked up the boys, and uh, the pretenders were born. You know, so I was on the wrong side of the fence then. It's the first time I'd been for a long time that side of the fence.
0: Lufford was uh, wasn't in the the Mott the hoopal lineup when you were in the the group, though. So how no, did you
1: connect? No, no, after after Mick Ralls, because Mick Ralph left after I left. Yeah. after I left Mott the hoopal. Mick Rouse left then and um, teamed up with Paul Rogers, and uh, they formed Bad Company. And he had a lot of success, a lot of success with that. Mm. And then, of course, Mott Hooper were looking for another guitarist, so Luther came along. And they renamed him Ariel Bender. But uh, that sort of uh, fizzled out after a while. I don't think Ian could uh, handle him. Mm. He's quite a quite a lad, he's Luther. And he was on the loose end in, in uh, London. That's when I bumped into him with Martin. It's written that it was Luther's
0: reluctance to play live with the group that meant that the Verdun Luther project
1: didn't continue. Is that accurate, though? Well, well, what happened was, you see, I wanted to play because I'd been doing gigs in the Cheeks, and I wanted to get out and play. But Luther didn't want to do that. Right. He just wanted to record the song, and and, and that was it. Um, and that that that's when um, I was told to go and form a band back together. But it was too late then. Jimmy'd fallen out with the, the bass player, and Chrissy Iron was coming on the scene, and so it didn't happen. Zero.
0: were you doing in the 1980s then
1: well not a lot i was just sort of uh, what they call out in the wilderness i sort of just just enjoy myself in a way and playing with some local bands and stuff like that but then i found a band called uh thunderbuck ram right we used a song on that one you got it down here yeah. uh, son of the wise hunts which was written actually Earlier on, Ian wanted to use it to put on with him for the dudes. He wanted to record it, some of the wise ones. Oh. yeah. Maybe I should have let him have it, but I didn't. I
0: kept it for myself. So that was released in the, the 90s then?
1: Yes, what I'd done then, I. Yes, it was. I think it was in the 90s. I, I formed my own label called Spin It Records and recorded uh, in, in uh, Broad Oak Studios, Pump Studios in the Herefordshire, with Dave Wood as the engineer. <clears throat> I put an album out then called Long Time No See. And that one was on the um, Son of the Wise Ones. And after that, was it Angel Air that collected? They did then. They did. I put it out first. I had a a short run done, about 500, which went more or less straight away at Nimbus Studios. They'd done it for me there, and uh, I put it out on my own label. And then Angel Air took it on after that and re-released it again on the Angel Air label. (laughs)
2: Oh, You're in good but the times will turn like the tide the wind is strong, but still we carry on till the fall.
1: band together then called um, Soft Ground that was going okay but we had to um, reform what the Hoople in 2009 and um, it was right to do it at the time already do it people had asked us to, to do it before and it was always the wrong time but this time cause my mother passed away she passed away in 2007 mm. and I saw Ian and I went to go and see him playing up in Birmingham the Robin Hood 2 there again in the Mick Jagger Centre down in Dartford he was playing with his band and he said to me I said to him for some reason, I don't know why, I said, if we don't get Martin Hooper back together now, it'll be too late. Mm. And he said to me, you do it then, get Pete and Buff together, and I'll sort out Mick. And I did, and I didn't think he thought it was going to happen, but it did. And because uh, I sort of took two years to do it. And we got together in 2009, and uh, I'm glad we did, because Buffin at the time was ill. He had, um, you know, he had, uh, where, he, where he had the disease, mm. he, he couldn't, uh, he's losing his memory. But he was good enough to come and play on two, three numbers. Got Martin Chambers to
0: come and play on the rest. We've next got Ballad of Mott the Hoople from the Manchester Apollo show from 2013. How did the 2009 and 2013 tours compare?
1: Um, well, for me, the 2009 was more together. We were sort of uh, rehearsed on that one. It was a great feeling. I really liked that. And the five of us were still around at the time. Because Martin Chambers came and uh, sat in with us because Buffin was ill. I preferred that one. And we should have kept going, really. We had an offer then. We had offers after that and all sorts of things, as we did in 2013. For me, the first, it was off, because it was like a, we tried it together and we put one gig on in um, Hammersmith Apollo and it was sold out within about an hour. So we put another gig on there and the next day and it went on for five days. It was selling out all the time. And they didn't have any more time there. And they would, the, the place was booked up. So we'd done two gigs in, in Monmouth to warm it up and then went and done his five gigs. So it, it was like a residency, really, Jason. It was just, uh, mm. you know, everything was set up. Whereas the 2013 gigs, that was more of a tour.
0: Right.
1: Ended up in, the, in, the, in Apollo in London. And also Buffett had passed away then. Mm. So it didn't quite have the same feel. But there's a good recording of um about the Mott the Hoople there.
0: Absolutely. What was it like playing a, a broader range of Mott the Hoople material and, and some, some material that you, you didn't feature on? What was that
1: like? Well, yeah, well, it didn't take long to fall into it, you know. I was used to playing with them for so long, it was just sort of falling It was like getting it back together. It took a little bit of time. But uh, once that was done then, it was like uh, I said to... So i think ian said to me after the last gig in uh in london he said well that's in 2013 he said that's it now he said back back to the back to the cheeks that sort of thing i said no i don't think so i think we better keep it going you know what i mean but we never did mm-hmm. we were offered some good gigs and uh even supporting bob dylan
2: oh.
1: in the hotline festival that, was, that would have been fantastic that was turned down you see but what, I didn't know this. As I told you in 2013, they'd already signed up with a European trade trademark. You know, registered with that, the name of the band, so they could use it. And Ian done that after with his band, using Ariel Bender and Morgan Fisher, which was uh, not nice, really. And that was uh, the last one. But um, that's the way it goes, I suppose. It Can't be done again now because Pete and Buff are gone, and Mick isn't well. He's, he's had a stroke, so he can't play.
2: Of fate, I find the mildest touch. Oh, I wish I never wanted that. What I want now, twice as much. We crossed the mighty ocean, and we had a few divides, but we never crossed the Cause we fell. Too much inside You know the tales we tell You know the band's so well But still I feel Somehow we let you down shall I dream Mick lost his guitar then grew a mile or two and I open still a rock and roll star behind me shade the visions face. i
0: You were still playing live and and playing music in the past decade though, haven't you?
1: Oh, yes. Well, my band then, I had to knock it on the head in 2013 when we'd done uh, the second reunion. And it was starting to get good then. It was starting to sort of come really easy. A couple of hours on stage when it seemed like about three quarters of an hour. It was really good. But... uh, and after that, then um, the boys drifted a little bit, so we couldn't sort of. Uh, after the, the Hooper uh, Secondary had finished, they drifted a little bit, so it was difficult to get it back together again. Mm. And it, it's getting the gigs; it was wasn't that easy. So I didn't do a lot, but I started, as I say, I bought some Pro Tools and I started mixing a couple of numbers. Then I started writing a few
0: more tracks. And that does bring us, us nicely to our final track, which is from "No One Knows" your new album. I thought it was a quite fitting to, to finish with just dream. Well,
1: I think it works great because that's what it is, just dreaming about everything that's happened in the past and hoping that it could happen again, it should happen, that sort of thing, you know. Yeah, it makes sense. That's what it's about, really. Just just, just dreams. It's always dreams, you dream about things, anyhow. But you've got to get up and do it as well. <laughs> Yes, it's, uh, it's a fitting finish to it all, I think.
0: It's been such a pleasure to talk to you, Verdon, and it's a, a great story, and it's fantastic to see that you have a new album out. Are you, are you still uh Are those creative
1: juices still there? Yeah, I think so. Yes, definitely. Yeah, and uh, when, it, when this comes out now, and uh, we'll see what happens with it, and uh, I'll sort of uh, try and write a few more things. I look forward to listening to that, and... Uh,
0: I wish you all the best with that release. And uh, it's been fabulous to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. And
1: you. Pleasure's been mine, Jason. Thank you very much. Bye. Just dream.
2: Love to dream All the time Cause I can see